Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Ain't No Mountain High Enough, a number one hit for Diana Ross that was co-written and co-produced by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Valerie Simpson. Later in the show, the Songwriters Hall of Famer and one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time chats about some of her major hits, including Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, Your Precious Love, You're All I Need to Get By, Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand, I'm Every Woman, Solid, and many more. Part One. Well, Paul, before we jump into this interview today, we have a little unfinished business. Yes, we do. Uh, we had Tia Sillers yep. as a guest on a recent episode of the show. She talked about her husband, her late husband, Mark Otis Selby, um, and this CD that he did called Naked Sessions. Yep. And she gave us a copy of the CD, um, and we announced to everyone that we were giving this away. In front of God and all our friends. In front of God and everybody. We, we said, hey, we're going to give this away, so send us an email. And what happened was we, we had to record the New Year's episode yep. a little before the actual New Year. Um, and we have not seen each other yep. in, in a month. Yep. And we forgot. We forgot. On the last episode to, to announce the winner of the Mark Otis Selby CD. So we admittedly fell down on our duties. There's egg on our face. I know we're good, but we're not perfect. And that's probably <laughs> a, a shock to yep. a lot of people. Yep. Um, so but anyway. This is the last episode. Of we, we quit. Yeah, we're done. If yeah. we can't meet the highest standards. Yeah. Or we could just announce the winner and, and we could carry on. Oh, we can do that? We could do let's, that. Let's do that. All right, let's do that one. So, huge congratulations to Garth Shaw, who is a loyal listener to friend Songcraft. Of friend, yeah. of, friend of Songcraft. And, uh, in fact, I think Garth won something from us before. I don't remember. Um, I think it might have been the Steve Dorff book, but I'm not yeah. sure. But, anyway, so Garth is now, I think, the first time we've had a double uh, yeah. uh, winner of the draw. So, Lucky man, Mr. Garcia. And I Garth think Shaw. yeah, it's worth pointing out for transparency's sake. I mean, this is not rigged. We didn't do this out of you know. We didn't do this on purpose, trying to make Garth win every contest. No, just because we like Garth doesn't mean that we're gonna let him win everything. He just happens to be crushing the rest of you right now. <laughs> so, uh, congratulations, Garth Shaw. We'll be mailing this uh, Marco to Selby CD to you and uh, everybody else. You know, stay tuned because we'll be giving away more stuff yep. before too long here. Part two. Well, so now that we've got kind of the nuts and bolts business part out of the way, we can, we can talk about this conversation we got coming up. And it's another one that I'm not a part of. Mm. Um, and, and again, I'm not going to be bitter about that. That's right. just kind of what happens, especially with you and your kind of your new jet setting lifestyle. You're bouncing <laughs> out from here to, to New York, to Nashville, to, you know, uh, San Bernardino, wherever it is that you happen <laughs> to go from time to time. But you found yourself uh, with a couple hours in the presence of Valerie Simpson. The great yeah. Valerie Simpson. Yeah, and, and part of it was she actually requested that if she were going to do the show that you not 
um, oh, participate. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. She loves the show, but she's not a big a big fan of yours. Right. Um, so well, I you know people have have very uh, sort of polar responses to me. You 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 know polite people never make history. Uh, right. And so you no. Yeah, um, well behaved women. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, we've been after Valerie Simpson for four years yep. ever since we started this show. Um, almost two years ago. A, a, a friend of mine in New York named Jim Bestman introduced me to Valerie. He took me over to her bar. She and uh, her late husband, Nick, owned a bar. She still owns the bar mm. in uh, Manhattan called Sugar Bar. And cool kind of nightclub, live performance venue bar that she has there. I met her there almost two years ago. Um, that same night I met uh, Joshy Joe Armstead, yeah. who we actually have had on yep. the show before. But I've been after Valerie for, for a long time to uh to be on the show and it hasn't ever really worked out uh i was in new york this past week i emailed her on sunday and i said i'm gonna be in new york this week could i interview you wednesday night i happen to be free that evening and she said okay that works wow. so after all this time after multiple failed attempts we finally got the big interview now, which all is cool. you had to do was fly across the country oh, that's, that's all i had to do so well, what's funny though is i um so I was I had to pack Sunday night, and so I put in enough stuff to record the interview, but I couldn't fit any microphone stands in my <laughs> suitcase. So I just sort of flew off to New York, like, well, we'll figure this out. <laughs> I don't know if Valerie and I are gonna like hold our microphones yeah. or what, right? So um, that night uh, before the, I was staying in Greenwich Village, and I thought I got to do something about finding some mic stands. So I went to um, a Guitar Center. Perfect. And uh, they didn't have any small, like, foldable mic stands, so I bought one of those ones that you put, like, as a mic on a kick drum. <laughs> it's really heavy. So you guys could lay down on the ground? <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought, well, maybe there'll be a table, <laughs> and I can set that in front of her yeah. on the table, but it was <laughs> really heavy. Yeah, so, I think the bases are made of old tombstones. Right? <laughs> They're <laughs> basically, super heavy. Basically. Yeah. So I'm on the subway, you know, like, carting my bag with this super heavy mic stand in it, and I get there, and I forgot that, like, oh, yeah, Shone's a nightclub. So <laughs> they uh, they had microphone stands there, so it was, it was unnecessary. But I did very much enjoy waking up in the 20-degree weather the next morning and walking a mile and a half to uh, Guitar, Guitar Center to return. 75-pound mic stand. Yeah, stands. with this huge mic stand <laughs> with my hands just freezing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you got to suffer for, for, the, for the craft. Well, you know what's funny is, like, every time I've ever been to Guitar Center, my, my 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 feeling is they think I'm an idiot. That's just sort of the mo there. I think it's right. like it must be a sign up in the in in the break room. Remember, treat people like idiots. <laughs> and you actually walked back in there looking like an idiot. Like an idiot. Yeah, like, you. I think I just made up a story like, oh, the uh, you know bass drum didn't respond well to the frequency of this <laughs> yeah, or good, whatever. Yeah. Um, but what <laughs> the other thing that's funny is, as you know, I collect autographed records. Yeah, and. So it occurred to me before I went over there, I thought, oh, man, I didn't bring an Ashford and Simpson record, and I'm going to meet Valerie. I could have got her to sign yeah. it. You know? I could have been a fanboy. So I thought, I'm in Greenwich Village. If there's anywhere in the world that still has record shops, it's Greenwich Village, right? Good point. So I went out, and I found this record shop, and it had some very aggressive signs in the window. We do not carry CDs. Yeah. It's just records. Okay. So I walk in. The place is about as wide as a bowling lane. Like, do you carry MP3s? Though? <laughs> <laughs> I walk in. There's this old guy working there. I said... Hey, I need to buy an Ashford and Simpson record. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any? And he's like, "Do you have a lot of their albums?" And I said, "I got some." And he goes, "Which ones are you missing that you need?" 
I'm like, look, man, actually, the reason I need this is because I'm going to be interviewing Valerie Simpson tonight. I'd like to get her to sign it. So I'm less concerned about what album it is, you know. <laughs> and he goes, well, I got Ashford and Simpson records down in the basement, but I'd have to go dig for them. And I'm kind of like, okay. All right, here's a five spot. Like, go, go do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so then he goes, hold on. And he goes and he starts digging through the bins and he goes, here's a Valerie Simpson solo record. You could get this. And I'm like, ah, you know, I kind of wanted the Ashford and Simpson one because the name Ashford and Simpson, but you know, fine. I'm not going to make the, oh, so then I said, but you don't have any Ashford and Simpson. He goes, well, I, I could go down and look, but you'd have to watch the store. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, man, it's cool. Uh, I, it's fine. I'll get the Valerie Simpson solo record. No you, problem. You know, I would have just watched the store just for the story. <laughs> just, just to be able to say that like for 10 minutes, <laughs> right. I ran this you record. Worked store. at a record shop in Greenwich village. Yeah. So I, so I go, how much is it? He goes $30. Jeez. And my eyes got really big. I think I might've started crying. And <laughs> he said, uh, we don't carry yard sale crap here. I was like, okay. Wow. So you know what? I just thought, I'm not going to make this old guy go down to the basement and dig. Fine, I'll yeah. plunk down the $30. How much for that Lisa Simpson record? <laughs> <laughs> right? So I bought the record for $30, tucked it under my arm, headed back to my hotel, passed a record store on the way back to my hotel, thought, I'll just pop my head in just to see, and discovered they had about 12 Ashford and Simpson records for 10 bucks or less. Yeah, front window papered with them. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I mean, it was in the A section. I walked yeah. in, and immediately there it was. So, um... Yeah, but, you know, I didn't know that I was going to encounter those, so I guess uh, I was not the savvy shopper that yeah. day. Yeah, well, and, and you you could have had a chance to, to watch this entire record store and maybe walk out with fistfuls of cash, <laughs> you know. If, uh, so, you, yeah, yeah. You, I don't think you planned that well at all. Yeah, yeah, so I kind of blew it. But anyway, I made it to the Sugar Bar with my uh, now uh, $30 LP and my $10 LP that I couldn't help but buy. <laughs> I, had to, I had to get them both. Uh, I've got the microphone stand that weighs uh, a ton and you know coming on the subway i'm an la guy we drive everywhere right so right. I've, all, I've been all turned around i'm disheveled i'm just sort of breathless uh normally i have you there to help set up all the gear you're the guy that's kind of the the more technical of the two of us and i was like racing to try to get it all set up just sweating <laughs> and uh somehow miraculously just in time for the interview uh, i got it all going she came in we did it and even though you weren't there which would have made it better I think we made it happen. Well, it sounds great, you know, from what I heard. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you, you preserved the, the, the vibe, the social vibe, way better than if you'd said, hey, will you hold this mic for an hour? <laughs> so I, I think whatever you did to get a hold of some stands worked yeah, out. Yeah, it, wor it worked. I do think that if anyone ever asks me one day, hey, what is disposable income? I, then I'll just tell your story right there. <laughs> like, it's, it's when you buy mic stands that you don't need and then pay $30, $30 for a you know, a record from the seventies and then stop at another store to see if they have any other ones right. or the one you just bought and go ahead and pay $10 <laughs> for another one, even though you already have one and don't take that one back. I, <laughs> that would be my, my definition of you know, disposable income. It's just so cold in New York. It's hard to think straight. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the thing that's really cool about just this, buy some soup next time. <laughs> the thing that I had to go to a soup kitchen cause I'd already spent all my <laughs> exactly. money on the other stuff. Uh, the thing that's cool about this is that, you know, uh, Ashford and Simpson are among the 100 greatest songwriters of all time, mm. according to Rolling Stone magazine's list. And we have discussed that list before. In fact, we made our own alternate list. for. Well, they our, got it very right episode. with them. Yeah. And they really nailed it, um, I think, by, by including them on that. And, um, you know, we have now interviewed seven people that are on that list. We've had Tom T. Hall, Loretta Lynn, Dan Penn, Jimmy Webb. 
Mike Stoller, Lamont Dozier, and now Valerie Simpson. It's pretty so awesome. That's like a baker's half dozen, seven, I guess. You, you, we should actually do the math and see how many of them are still living and then how many of those we've interviewed because that yeah. would give us a there real There are a percentage. lot of dead people on that list. Yeah. So we have... Uh, and those are hard to get interviews with. And it's cool that the last... <laughs> we could do a seance. That could be like... <laughs> we could do a whole season of seances. Um, In October, we'll do that. <laughs> but uh, having Lamont Dozier be on the show yeah. and now Valerie Simpson is especially cool because this is the 60th anniversary of Motown yeah. this year. And... Um, Boy, talk about a great contribution to the American songbook. I mean, tell you the, what, man. The, the Motown thing is just crazy. I mean, yeah, I don't know of any music that is more, you know, American than, right? than Motown. And, you know, it's it's funny. I had this conversation with someone the other day, and they, they said something about Al Green and then said Motown. I was like, no, <laughs> no, no. Just because you're like a soul R&B artist from the 60s doesn't mean that right. it's Motown. Like, it has to be affiliated with the label. <laughs> it has to be on the label, you know, right, right. Detroit, Hitsville, USA. Right, like, right. it has to be part of that roster. Yep. Um, which is amazing, really, when you think about it. I don't think you can th you can talk about any other record label right. that's had that type of impact. Yeah, it's insane. And during the whole British invasion, I mean, I think Motown and the Beach Boys were like the only... You know, American defense against the Beatles and that whole that whole That's thing. That's incredible. Um, but uh, but yeah. So being the 60th uh, anniversary of Motown this year, I'm hoping we can still have Smokey Robinson sometime. Yeah. Um, Eddie and Brian Holland would be great guests to have. Be I awesome. think uh, Barrett Strong and Mickey Stevenson are still right around. Um, I'm gonna see if I've still got Stevie Wonder's number in my phone from <laughs> you know the basketball league we were in right, together. Right. But let me, I'll, I'll check. <laughs> yeah. If anyone out there knows any of these people. Stevie Wonder in particular, and yeah. you want to help us get them on Songcraft, we would love to celebrate Motown this whole year with some special Motown-themed interviews, uh, and yeah. that would be a very cool thing. So, Yeah, if you're listening and you hook that up, we'll do something incredible for you. Indeed. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know, know what it is, what. <laughs> but it'll be amazing. It'll be insane. You'll be glad you helped us yep. out. Part three. Six-time Grammy nominee Valerie Simpson is best known as one half of the songwriting, production, and performing duo of Ashford and Simpson, which she formed with musical partner and eventual husband Nick Ashford after they met at a church in Harlem, New York in the early 1960s. After early successes with Aretha Franklin's recording of Cry Like a Baby and Ray Charles' recordings of Let's Go Get Stoned and I Don't Need No Doctor, Nick and Valerie signed with Motown Records, first as songwriters, where their early successes included the hit singles Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Your Precious Love, recorded by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. They soon began both writing and producing for the duo with hits such as Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, You're All I Need to Get By, Good Lovin' Ain't Easy to Come By, and What You Gave Me. Additional writing and production credits at Motown came with hits by The Supremes, The Marvelettes, The Miracles, Gladys Knight, and Diana Ross, who found success with Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand, Remember Me, Surrender, and a remake of Ain't No Mountain High Enough that topped both the pop and R&B charts. In addition to writing number one hits, such as Quincy Jones's Stuff Like That and Shaka Khan's I'm Every Woman after their Motown period, Ashford and Simpson began releasing their own recordings as a duo, landing nearly 40 songs on the Billboard R&B singles chart. Their list of top 10 hits as artists includes It Seems to Hang On, Found a Cure, Love Don't Make It Right, Street Corner, Out of the World, Count Your Blessings, I'll Be There for You, and Solid. Ashford and Simpson were the recipients of the ASCAP Founders Award, which is the highest honor bestowed by the organization. They were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, named among Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, and provided the inspiration for the establishment of the Soul Train Ashford and Simpson Songwriters Award. 
Following Nick's untimely death in 2011, Valerie has continued to write, record, and even appear on Broadway in the acclaimed musical Chicago. Valerie, welcome to Songcraft. It's great to be here. I know that you, you know, grew up in church and, and gospel music was really uh, a big influence on you as a kid. But um, tell me about some of the, the other music that maybe you were absorbing as a child when you were first kind of, you know, figuring out how to play piano and becoming aware of, of influences around you. Well, I think my biggest influences at a young age uh, uh, was like Nina Simone. Hmm. I could appreciate that she was a wonderful pianist and uh, an interesting vocalist and unique. Uh, and she was a songwriter. Yeah. And then, of course, you had Aretha Franklin, who started out very young, and she also started in the church. So those people really lit the way for me, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And then, nicely, I became friends with both of them. So hmm. yeah. I was very lucky. Yeah. Was your household, did, did your folks have like a lot of records or listen to the radio? No, my grandmother was a minister. So, you know, I was really, you know, into the gospel. And um, we didn't, it wasn't that we listened to so much music, but because of that, that experience, spiritual music and gospel music, uh, um, it just taught me a lot how spontaneity and how to mm-hmm. be free and, how to follow people when they're singing and changing keys and stuff hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, and and did you were you born here in New York City? I was born in New York, uh, raised in the Bronx. So uh, yeah, I'm a real New Yorker. Well, I believe that you were were singing and and maybe also playing some piano at the White Rock Baptist Church in Indeed. Harlem when you were uh, just a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and maybe weren't necessarily, you know, writing your own songs yet until you met this stranger who showed up one Sunday for, for service. And that kind of led to, led to a whole thing. So tell me a bit about that. You you know, you just don't really know what your gift is. Sometimes somebody has to pull it out of you. Mm -hmm. And by Nick just visiting that church, uh, and we needed some gospel songs because I played the piano and he wrote lyrics right. and he was used to writing songs. He and I just hit it off and we just started, you know, working on these tunes together. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know that I would have found that lane, hmm. you know, had that experience not happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that when, when Nick came to New York, that he was like, you know, he came here with a dream and he was kind of down and out, you know, starting out. No, at, he wanted to be a dancer. So he came here with that that vision mm-hmm. now you know the dancers really didn't make much money so he might have been lucky that <laughs> <laughs> he didn't make it <laughs> right <laughs> right 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 and he was he was sleeping on a, a bench oh, he right? ended up sleeping on a park bench because yeah. his money ran out you know and uh but it's all you know it's all that's the stuff that 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 shows you who you really are mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. So, you know, years later, I was able to buy that bench for him. You yeah. Know, and that meant the world, you know, because for three months he was out there sleeping on it. Yeah. And there's a plaque on it today, right? In, That's right. In Bryant Nick Park Ashley here in New York. Here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You tell a story often enough and other people pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And when they're down and out, they go to that bench. Yeah. Because they know there's something there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it also speaks to, you know, people who are successful, whether it be, songwriting or singing or or sports or whatever it is 
you know, it, it says something about the kind of dedication. If you're going to move to a place and, and pursue something, it's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make this dream happen. You're going to stick to it, whether things are going well or things are challenging. Well, it's about putting in time, working in the dark without a guarantee. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's nobody, you're not sure anybody cares or they're going to call you right. or it's going to turn into money, but you know that it's a passion, you know, it's something in your heart and mm -hmm. you just want to get it out, you know, yeah. and you're willing to put enough time to get better. Cause you know, that first stuff, some of it hits the trash, <laughs> right, right, but right. you know, you know, there's something there and, yeah. and, and we stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I believe the earliest commercial recordings that I was able to find with, with you and Nick are found on the album Gospel Meeting by The Followers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it wasn't long before the song uh, Please Little Angel was recorded by Doris Troy, who's, yeah. you know, of course, best known for, for just one look. And, um, you know, that's kind of the, the first time that we see a record kind of making some noise outside the gospel field. And, and you guys obviously both, you know, writers on that. did you guys start kind of making that transition from the from the church to the secular gospel and R&B field? Well, we were actually approached by, you know, two gentlemen and Doris that that were associated with Doris and hmm. uh they uh asked if we could write love songs and uh came to our church. And we figured, well, God is love. We can make this work. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, so we, you know, we gave it a, you know, a go. And we were astounded that there were publishers out there willing to take a song. You know, we didn't even think in terms of having a hit record. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could finish a song and then get an advance, mm -hmm. that was quite sufficient, you know. Yeah. We used to get like maybe 75 bucks, you know, per song or mm. something, or sometimes 100, you know. Yeah. We thought this was like gold, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, so it was like, oh, you can really make a living doing this? Right. Uh, <laughs> it just opened up the vistas, you Right. Know? Somebody will pay me to do the yeah. thing I love to do anyway. I was going to give it to them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, long before you guys found success as uh, Ashford and Simpson as performers in, in the 70s, um, you were professionally known as Valerie and Nick, uh, recording I'll Find You for Glover Records in 1964. Did you guys kind of fall into the songwriting career while you were aiming to be artists? Or from the very beginning, did you kind of have this sense of, we want to write stuff for other people? Well, the Glover music uh, just came from the fact that we, you know, that I'll find you, they thought that we, that we might be a duet. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we, you know, we gave that a go, but in, actually we gave up the idea very quickly 
to be artists because we realized that was really hard and yeah. we were the most novice at that trying <laughs> to sing, you know, because we did a couple of gigs and it was rough. Yeah. Oh my God. They, they crucify you. You know, hmm. I remember they throw things at you, you know, it was <laughs> awful. Right. So we were like, Oh no, we don't want to do this. Right. Let's just stick with the writing. And, uh, <laughs> right. Let somebody else go out there and get yeah. a tomato thrown at them. We'll write the songs for them. <laughs> um, well, in 1965 and 1966, you were getting a, a bunch of your songs cut by artists on um, Florence Greenberg's Wand and, mm. and Scepter labels. And, you know, we're talking like Maxine Brown, The Guess Who, uh, The Shirelles, Chuck Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. But the artist who gave you your first top 20 R&B song on the charts, a man who is now in the Country Music Hall of Fame, but was a blue-eyed soul singer back in those days, Ronnie Millsap, um, recorded yeah. Never Had It So Good. Right girl comes along and when you find her Brother, you better hang on Could I leave my baby? During that whole era when you guys were, were doing that, it, it wasn't the the duo of Ashford and Simpson. It was a, a trio, it was with, a trio with Joe Armstead in those Indeed. days. Indeed. Um, how did you guys link up with, with her and, and how did how did that dynamic kind of work from a songwriting perspective? Well, I think it happened kind of just because we were trying to do the same thing, Nick and I, and then we met her on Broadway trying to do the same thing, get in advance. That really yeah. was what it was all about. Yeah. And then we realized that she was a really good singer, so we could take a halfway decent song and make it sound wonderful. <laughs> By the time I got through playing and working up an arrangement and Nick, you know, and doing the harmonies and all of that, and Joshie had the best voice, so, you know, we, we'd go in there and we'd just wow the people. Yeah. Then, you know, I don't know what they did with the song after we gave it to them, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, in those days... Um, and forgive my ignorance, but would the publishers give you an advance on the belief that they could get the song cut or would they only give it to you once it was cut? Yeah. No, on the belief that, you know, yeah. no, we had to get that money right away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so for, for listeners who might not realize an advance just means we're going to be earning money on this. So we're going to advance you some of the money that you will be due now. And then we'll and the, recoup it. Before you ever see a do another dollar, you have to pay us back. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, well, speaking of Ronnie Millsap, uh, he also recorded you guys' song, Let's Go Get Stoned, Yeah. Um, as did the Coasters and, and maybe some others. But it was Ray Charles who, of course, really turned that into to a classic and, and made it a number one R&B single in 1966. And that was kind of the first real, real you know, national breakthrough right. for, for you and Nick and, and Joshie as writers. Um, how did that song kind of come together? Actually, to the credit of the publisher, Ed Silvers, who was, you know, working for Florence, um, we went in there on a fluke looking for an advance, and uh, we didn't really have anything else together because we had worked the night before and we hadn't been that successful. And hmm. then Nick said, well, you know, let's just do a little bit of that thing that we were singing as we were leaving. And which was let's go get stoned because we were just going to go have a drink and forget about it. Oh. <laughs> and all we had was the uh, the hook, yeah. the, the chorus. And Ed said, if he said, I really like that. He said, and if you finish it, I really think I could get it to Ray Charles. Now, before Ray Charles did did it, as you mentioned, others 
he sent it other places and yeah. got it recorded. Yeah. But it really was his vision for Ray Charles to do, and he was right. Now, wait a minute. You know my baby. She won't let me in. I've got a few is I'm going to buy myself a bottle of gin. Then I'm going to call my buddy on the telephone and say, So were you guys at this point, were, were you working like other jobs or were you spending all day long focusing on, on no, trying to make it? No, we were focusing on, on songwriting. That's why was so, we were so desperate to, you know, to yeah. make it work, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why we put in the time mm-hmm. so that we would have some songs that we could possibly get these advances. Right. <laughs> advance to advance. Yeah. Um, well, in 1966, uh, Ray Charles covered another one of your songs, I Don't Need No Doctor, mm. which was uh, originally recorded by Nick as an artist, I think, on, on Verve Records. Yeah. Um, and, and even though you and, and Nick and Joshi had other successes that year, including uh, Aretha Franklin's recording of Cry Like a Baby, mm. that was kind of the, the end of, of the first era really of your of your songwriting career because by the following year you and and nick were you know headed to motown and and that Mm. was kind of the the next um the next phase and and you know joshy had had moved on um what kind of led to the the trio becoming a duo well you know joshy was from chicago and so she was spending time in chicago and new york Mm -hmm. uh and because there are some songs, if you check the credits, even during that were just me and Nick, and some were the three of us. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we were just, you know, you just, it's growth, yeah. change, yeah. you know, different styles, you know. And Nick was a very uh, uh, prolific writer. I mean, and he was fast. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like he really needed it to work with anybody. So, yeah. uh, you know, after a while, you realize, well, I can do this, you know, I can do this. And mm-hmm. then I did some songs with, with just Jossie. Yeah. So, you know, you just, there are different combinations that work at different times. Yeah. Yeah. So just kind of a natural evolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how did you guys wind up in the Motown universe? Somebody gave Holland Dozier Holland, who came to New York scouting uh, writers, songwriters, and somebody fortunately gave them our names. And uh, so they reached out and Nick, took our little demos and went to this hotel down, I think it was a Hilton or something. And he almost left because he thought it was a fluke, Hmm. you know, and they took so long to get to him. And just as he was at the elevator getting ready to go down, Hmm. uh, Jeffrey Bowen, who was with them, said, no, we really want to see you. You know, we're interested to hear what you got, you know. And he stopped him at the elevator. And then Nick went in and had the meeting and they heard our stuff. And said they really wanted to fly us out to Detroit. And that was it. Wow. So you guys flew out and met with Barry and signed up like just like that? Well, when we went out there, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Wow. You know, wow. um, you know uh, it was interesting because uh, they wouldn't let you take the contracts home. Huh. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, come on, we're kids. So we didn't bring a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so the question is, what are you going to do? You going to sign this thing or right. are you going to? wait and call a lawyer and hope they still want you, you right, know? Right, right. And <laughs> he looked at me and I looked at him and we decided we was going to sign it. 
And that was, yeah. there went seven years, <laughs> but seven great years. I got to say, you know, seven great years. In 1967, you and Nick, as as now a songwriting duo, found a, a great deal of success on Motown's Tamla label with the uh, performing duo of, of Marvin Gaye and, and Tammy Terrell, um, starting with Ain't No Mountain High Enough, top five R&B hit, your first top 20 on the Billboard pop chart. resonates with so many people. It's probably the most popular of all of our songs. Hmm. Uh, actually, Nick was walking down Central Park West, uh, looking at the buildings, he said, and, and they reminded him of mountains because he was here in New York. He, you know, he was determined that he was going to make it, you know, he said, and he just felt like there was so many things going against him. But he said, the buildings look like mountains. And he said, ain't no mountain high enough. You know, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough. Hmm. And so, you know, but he was thinking in terms of his personal self, you know, so Mm -hmm. it really comes from overcoming, you know, I'm going to make it regardless. Yeah. And then we turn that idea into a love song, which Mm. was the song, you know, that we gave to to Motown from Marvin Gaye. But we knew it was a hit (laughs) because I remember Dusty Springfield wanted to from us and uh, we didn't give it to her because <laughs> we knew that was like our golden apple and we yeah. wanted to start off our relationship with something that really felt like a hit mm-hmm. so um uh and we were right about that one yeah <laughs> yeah i'd say so um but you finished out 1967 with another great marvin and tammy hit your precious love oh i love that top yeah. five single on both the r&b and, and yeah. pop charts um, went on to be covered by uh, Al Jarreau and Randy Crawford, uh, Neil and Dara Sadaka, about a million other people. Um, but tell me what you remember about writing that song. I just remember that as being a real sexy song. You know, some songs are inherently, you know, bedroom material. And that <laughs> right. was definitely one, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, we even put the, the, we were making our own demos, sending them to Harvey and Johnny. And so mm-hmm. the finger snaps and all of that. You know, and the you know the baseline we had all that. So I mean, yeah. we really gave them a, a the feeling of what the right. song should be. They had the template. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. And so, uh, and it it turned out really beautifully. And that song really inspired us to fight for a production contract because we well we just turning this stuff over and other people are doing it, you know. We're we're grateful that we got a hit, but we are so much a part of the production that we mm-hmm. should go on and produce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, and that's why in 1968 we see the songwriting duo of Ashford and Simpson become the songwriting and producing yeah. duo of Ashford and Simpson. And of course, with with Marvin and Tammy again. I mean, you guys had such a great a great run with them, but ain't nothing like the real thing. Yeah. Another another classic. So, was that kind of the beginning? Was was that the that first? That was the beginning. That was the song that actually Barry, when we approached him, he was you know he said, well you know, Harvey and Johnny have had two hits. Mm-hmm. on your songs she said so i can't exactly not let them hear this song yeah but you can produce it and they can produce it and then whichever one comes out the best is the one that'll hit the street because <laughs> the song sounds like a hit yeah so he made it we made us each do productions yeah and we were just lucky enough to get through with ours you know and uh that was our first so from then on we didn't have to fight for it yeah know? yeah but don't forget the artist had to pay for both Right. <laughs> right. That story to me is so perfectly encapsulates kind of the competitive spirit that oh, was yeah. that was kind of nurtured at, at Motown, which probably drove people nuts and also but resulted in great music. It <laughs> right. made us all better. You <laughs> right, know? right, yeah. Because to think like, okay, these guys just to produce two huge hits, but it's like, well, it doesn't matter if the if somebody else can do it better, then the next one goes to that. That's you it. Know? And, and I think that competitive thing kind of defined Motown, really. I don't think we would have been a strong writer anywhere else because you were constantly, he kept us in close proximity to each other. He kept music rooms real close so you could hear what was going on next door. (laughs) Right. And then you listen to your own again. You say, wait a minute, I need a little more work here. Right, right. So, you know, that, like you say, competitive, it was almost like you were in school, you know, Mm -hmm. and fighting for whatever right right know. who's gonna be who's gonna be the dominant one today yeah <laughs> um well kind of in terms of the division of labor just between between you and and nick talk about kind of the um how each of you contributed and how the partnership worked in terms of lyrics and melody and chord progression and, and all that well i did the music nick basically did the lyric but because he was a singer as well we worked on the the melody lines mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to make them as strong as possible. And uh, it was was almost like we did it simultaneously, Hmm. which is unusual. It wasn't like he handed me some lyrics and said, go, you know, find some music for it. Right. We would sit down together and, and, you know, uh, uh, know, I remember particular, like when I put the first chords to You're All I Need to Get By. Dun-dun, 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 dun-dun. You know, he said, you're all I need to get by. <laughs> you know, so yeah. sometimes, you know, it just speaks to you in a way that you know what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, and we were, we, we kind of, it made it kind of magical. Right, right. Yeah. So it's real, in the moment, real yeah, collaborative. in the moment, happening all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. And then here's the lyric sheet. Yeah. Go make some music. I mean, it's Or here's really... some music. Now yeah. put some words on it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, You're All I Need to Get By, another one of the great Marvin and Tammy um, classics that you guys wrote and produced. Yeah, I, 
Um, and, and that's one of those songs that's, it, it's the Energizer Bunny, you know, it's, <laughs> it's been recorded by Dionne Warwick, uh, Diana Ross, which you guys produced that version, of course, Aretha Franklin had a top five R&B hit with it, Tony Orlando and Dawn, uh, Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams, and then it gets sort of reinvented years later by Mary J. Blige and, and, and Method, Method Man, Man, and they win a Grammy for, you know, their kind of interpolation of that song. Um, Back in 1968, when you guys were writing these songs, did you have any concept that people might still be singing them and talking about them 30, 40, 50 almost years later? Not a clue. We were absolutely <laughs> clueless. You know, we didn't yeah. even know that, you know, pop tunes were sticking around that long. Hmm. Uh, but you know what? I have to give Barry credit for uh, he had a vision, which is why years later, more recently, I heard him at an ASCAP dinner say that his thought was to to make the song standards, huh. even though they were pop songs, right. which is why he put the catalog at ASCAP, because they had George Gershwin, and, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, all of these standard writers. Mm -hmm. So I thought that, you know, was very visionary on his part. Yeah. You know, and then he also did his part by making sure they they were they stayed in the consciousness yeah. that he got them recorded over and over different artists, you know, mm -hmm. on the same label would do a version of your song if it was right. a really good song. Right. And, you know, he, he didn't really pick the bummers. He picked the really good songs. Sure. And, you know, like for once in my life and all of that, you know, so uh, I think that, you know, that that was his keen thinking. Yeah. Being not only a businessman, but a songwriter himself. Yeah. Who yeah. had hits. Sure. So, um, you know, uh, we were fortunate. Yeah. And also what I loved is I never got the feeling that I was at a black company, hmm. you know, and relegated to an R&B perspective. Yeah. I felt like I was making music, you know, for everybody. Right. And they they pushed it that way. Sure. Which, you know, which is great. You don't want to be in a box when you're a songwriter. Right. You know? um, right. And, you know, you know, a lot of the records, they say, oh, well, this is just, you know, for the, a certain audience, you know, right. Nobody else is going right. to hear it. Yeah. Um, Another significant song in production that, that came that same year, um, 1968, uh, is when Diana Ross and Supremes scored a top 40 pop hit with Some Things You Never Get Used To. Mm. And, you know, the Supremes, you mentioned Holland, Dozier, Holland were the ones that first kind of brought you guys to Motown. And I mean, they had had, had a streak of like a dozen number one hits yeah. with Holland, Dozier, Holland. I mean, that, that partnership had sort of created the Supremes. And you guys were the first ones to kind of step in there after, you know, Holland Dozer Holland were kind of out the door. And, and you guys, you know. I didn't even think about it like that. I mean, I would have been intimidated. <laughs> I didn't even, well, we, we never thought about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was never thought about that way. Uh, right. Um, just never did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because like you said, we were part of that, that cog wheel, you know, that wheel that just, you know, churn it out. Yeah. You know, come right. on up with it. You know. Right. There's not a lot of time to be philosophical, no. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is doing your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, to me, I just think, oh, my gosh. It's I just like getting a in foot here. in the door, too. You know, <laughs> right. you wouldn't have got, we wouldn't even have got a shot at them if, if, if they had still been around. So, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so it was really your opening. Yeah, it was like an yeah. opening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the late 1960s were uh, a really productive time for, for you and Nick at Motown. You uh, 
uh, continued to have success with Marvin and Tammy with songs like Keep on Loving Me, Honey, Good Loving Ain't Easy to Come By, um, What You Gave Me. But you're also, you know, branching out and, and really finding success with, with a lot of the, the Motown roster. And I'm thinking of Destination Anywhere by the Marvelettes. Oh, I love that. Didn't yeah. you know you'd have to cry sometime? Gladys Knight, Who's Gonna Take the Blame by the Miracles. You know, there's all these different acts that, that you guys were, were supplying songs for. Um, given the level of activity and, and all the stuff that was going on, did you guys ever actually fully relocate to Detroit? No, we never moved. We always were the visitors from New York. <laughs> Interesting. But you cut all the stuff in Detroit. Uh, yeah. Wow. But th- we cut a couple of things in New York afterward, after we got established. But most yeah. of the stuff was cut in Detroit. Wow. But we would fly in and stay a week. 10 days and then go back. Wow. Wow. And, but you had, you must've been there pretty, pretty frequently yeah. in that era. Yeah. We did, you know, well, you know, Nick was from that area, so mm-hmm. it, you know, it was no big deal. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, but it, you know, it, it kept us in a nice place. They didn't get tired of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You weren't there every day yeah. so they could miss you when you're gone. <laughs> um, well, as we move into the 1970s, we see you guys doing some really great work with uh, Diana Ross after her departure from the Supremes. And her self-titled debut album as a solo artist was basically almost entirely written and, and mm-hmm. produced by you guys, except for one song. Um, how were you guys able? I'm sure there were a lot of people who would have loved to, to get that assignment for mm-hmm. a project that Barry, I'm sure, put a lot of importance on. Um, what kind of led to you guys getting to, to be the ones to get it? Well, Barry, that was his decision, uh, you know, uh, and which was a big deal because at that time, most albums were divided up amongst the producers. Right. Uh, you know, usually around at least two or three. Mm-hmm. So uh, for him to decide that we should do basically do Diana Ross's first album, meant a lot to us and mm-hmm. we knew it was a big challenge and we knew that she was the darling of the company and right. we knew that you know eyes would be on us and ears would be listening yeah so uh you know and he didn't get in the way of whatever it was we were gonna do it wasn't like we had restrictions on us or anything or so it was up to us and so we just went for it yeah um and when we finished you know it was his decision to go with the reach out and touch song, you mm-hmm. know, which had a different kind of appeal, you know. Right. Well, it was a waltz. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something know, a little so, different. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't our first choice, but, you know, that was yeah. what he wanted, you yeah. know. And yeah. so. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. But that is one of those songs, you know, lyrically that that has kind of you know, survived and, and, oh, yeah. and, you know, yeah. it's it's gone on and on. What, what do you think it is about that particular song that really resonates with people? Well, it's the universality of it all. You know, uh, I think it's still the goal. Hmm. You know, we still want to do that, yeah. you know, uh, um, and it was the first time I ever I remember we were in the studio and I was playing on an organ and I don't play organ, hmm. which that's what inspired him to say, reach out and touch somebody's hand. 
because uh, it sounded churchy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that it, it turns up at all of these events, like uh, it was the Olympics and, mm-hmm. you know, in churches and, you yeah. know, and funerals and mm-hmm. anything. I mean, it's just one yeah. of those songs, you yeah. know, where yeah. it's like little kids know it, you know, right. older people know it. It's just one of those songs, right. you right. know, and uh, you just can't plan that stuff. Right. It just happens, you know. Right. It's kind of like a secular gospel yeah. song in a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, her second single, which I suspect is the one that you guys were hoping That's would have been hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> would have been the first yeah. one, but she uh, revived Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Speaking of Motown having that tradition of, of artists, you know, doing song, you know, different artists doing the same songs, but talk about different. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that was not, you know, bare, you know, not Motown's doing, that was our doing the fact that actually it stemmed from the idea that because music had changed and people were doing longer mm-hmm. songs, you know, uh, Isaac Hayes was doing long songs and right. So we thought about, you know, what could we do that we could lengthen and, you know, we always liked that kind of, you know, dramatic build to songs, you know, right. from the church, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Nick felt like she had a sexy voice. So we, you know, that's how all of those, all those things fell into place in that right. song. And uh, with a great arrangement by Paul uh, Reiser, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it, but Barry just really did not hear it at all. He gave us such, so much the blues. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, you know, it's like you go in with something that you think is really wonderful and somebody just cuts you at the knees. Right. That was the way we felt, you know, because he he just thought it was like a whole lot of, to do about nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and why are you taking so long getting to the hook? And, you know, it's, right. it's going on and on and you haven't said it. And this, you know, who's going to listen that long? And, that, you know, right. well, that was the whole point to make it long and dramatic and build it. Right. Yeah, I, remember, I will never get Nick telling him, you know, it's like an orgasm. You don't have it right away. You let it build, you know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, but nothing, you know, he was like, well, if you don't all don't want to change it, then, you know, I just can't, you know, uh, you know, it won't be the first single. That's for sure. Yeah. But the DJs, they, you know, they listened and they liked it. And hmm. the next thing you know, they were, you know, they were playing it all across the country. So, yeah, he was wrong that time. Right. You know? <laughs> so the DJs and the public kind of drove yeah. it more than the record company oh, driving for sure. it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, and it is such a ambitious uh, production for that era, you know, it's really like this intricate, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing. <laughs> I knew what I wanted and Paul Reiser could translate that into mm-hmm. the string part and, you know, the right key, ch- you know, key change when it happens, you right, know, right. we had Jossie screaming at the top of her lungs on the, <laughs> on the high part. We had the Andantes doing double, double harmonies, you right. know? So it was like all this, everything with the kitchen sink was on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys wrote and produced Diana's third solo album, Surrender, which uh, spawned the hits Remember Me and, and also the title track, Surrender. And um, But I'm curious why, between these two great albums that you guys did, a different producer was brought in for her second LP, especially on the heels of this huge number one hit. What was the second album? Uh, everything is Everything. Everything's Everything? Yeah. You never know how these, you know, that happens more often than not. Hmm. Uh, you know, maybe a favor is owed. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And you never know, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you come not to take it personally. You know? Right. You don't, 
nothing belongs to you. Hmm. There's no guarantee. Right. You know? Right. So, yeah. You have to just kind of hold it with a loose grip and what happens happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you recorded a couple solo albums of your own, um, mm. kind of toward the end of, of the, that Motown era, starting with yeah. the exposed LP in, in 1971, um, followed by the self-titled album the following year. And, and that spawned the single silly wasn't I. Those albums, which I think are really strong, um, you know, just didn't make a huge commercial splash at the time, you know, and, and, and looking back from, you know, 45 years later um, on those records, why do you think they didn't really take off at the time? You know, I think it's, it wasn't supposed to happen. Hmm. It just wasn't. And if it had happened, I don't think Nick and I would have had the career we had. Huh. I think my head would have been so swollen. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Uh, and so, you know, we hadn't, you know, done certain things yet mm-hmm. that together yeah. and I could have, you definitely went off in the wrong, the wrong direction and got mm. full of myself. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad, you know, yeah. uh, that it, that it worked out the, the way it did because then, then we found we had an attraction for each other and then yeah. a romance and then, you know, so yeah. I got to have a real life. Right. And then a, a career as an artist with him. So yeah, that yeah. would not have happened if I had been a hit. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of fascinates me considering how closely you guys worked, you know, together that it, that it took that long. And I, I'm interested to hear kind of how that professional relationship developed into a, a, a personal relationship. Well, I think it's it was, you know, good timing, too. And it was also timing in the sense that you have a great working relationship but you're also very honest with this person this person knows you very well Mm -hmm. Uh, they see you with others I see him with others Uh, and you're coming to know each other in in a very way you're not pretending anything because there is no romance Mm -hmm. so when it really did hit we could bypass a lot of stuff you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and again I I dare say, you know, if we had started early on, he, you know, neither one of us would have had any experience. Yeah. You know, it's at least I got to know other guys and have relationships, right. you know, and so, and he did the same. So, you know, things worked out as they should. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any moment where you both kind of looked at each other and were like, oh yeah, there's something more here. Or would it just evolve? Yeah. It really did happen at a, at a function. I remember, you know, something in New York and, and we we danced together on a slow dance which we never you know really I never thought about it before you know and all of a sudden I looked at him he looked a little different you know didn't I used to always call him people would ask us that and I was oh he's just like my brother right right. he said they used to bug the shit out of me (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be your brother (laughs) (laughs) so you know that night it changed (laughs) right right all right um, well, you guys left Motown, um, went over to Warner brothers in the seventies. Um, they released a, a handful of albums mm-hmm. and, and really kind of made a splash with the, uh, send it up LP, which spawned a, a couple of, of hit singles with the title track and, and don't cost you nothing in, in 1977, 78. 
um, in, in what ways just creatively was moving to a, a new label, a new environment, um, you know, how did, how did that sort of, did, did it change anything in oh, terms of just how you worked? You know, it's like, um, uh, when our contracts were up at Motown, you know, very promised to let us do our own thing as artists, but we had been there seven years and our contracts were up. Yeah. There was no way he was going to see us fresh. You know, he wanted to keep us as that machine that was going to turn out hits for his artists. Sure. So even though he would let us do something, it would have probably went the way of the, my two albums. Mm-hmm. That's the way we felt. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was time to go somewhere where somebody would see you as the new kid. Right. So that's why, you know, we got, you know, overtures from a couple of companies and we decided mm-hmm. to go with Warners. And I'm really glad we did because I'm still friends with, with so many people from that time. Right. Um, I want to ask you about uh, stuff like that, the collaboration with, with you and Nick and, and Quincy Jones with a, you know, a handful of studio musicians as well. You know, when that record came out, we're talking 1978, number one R&B record. Um, we're kind of getting into the the height of the, the disco era at that point. And you guys are now kind of writing different kinds of songs than you were writing, you know, 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, as a songwriter, in what ways, you know, what do you do to kind of keep your ears open, stay attuned to the changing times and not just keep doing the same thing, you know, you had a winning formula, but you were willing to get out of that box and, and do some different things. How do you kind of consciously do that as a songwriter? Well, it's, you know, it's, you, you sense the times, you get the feeling, you hear what's, what's current, you hear what's on the radio, you know what you like of it, what you don't like. And especially when you're thinking about disco, you know, that could be really mindless stuff unless, you know, so our thing was to always try to put some kind of message on the beat. Mm-hmm. You know, say something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though you might have to say it over and over, but say something. <laughs> right. Get a good message. You know, in there. put a message on there some kind of way. So that was the goal, and and um, to the best, you know, of our ability. And you know, yeah. you, you want to do a song that you don't mind singing, because huh. a lot of times the songs that you come up with, you, you know, you you don't mind recording them, but the idea that you have to sing this night after night doesn't sit so well. You know. Right, right, right. You don't want to hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the same time that you guys were kind of blowing up with your your own artist career at Warner Brothers, you had yet another number one R&B single and, and top 20 pop hit with Shaka Khan on I'm Every Woman, mm. which was, you know, huge. And of course, you know, Whitney Houston did it again years later. That's one of those enduring uh, classics. Reef Martin was producing Shocker's uh, Leaving uh, Rufus, her solo album, and, right. uh, and he called up, he's a good friend, and called up and asked for a song. And uh, I remember I was in Connecticut, and we I was playing that music over and over, and uh, Nick came in from the other room, and he just 
looked at me, he said, I'm every woman. I said, that's a great title. I love that. <laughs> you know, you know, just born out of that, you know, yeah. just yeah. that music, you know, uh, and, uh, and it, it worked, be, you know, it's like you, you have to trick yourself when you're writing um, so that even though you know you have an assignment, you don't want to think about it as an assignment. Hmm. So, uh, you know, if you want the muse to still appear and to give you something better than you would come up with on your own. And that's kind of, you know, how that kind of thing can happen sometimes. Yeah. And, and he had to kind of channel his... Uh his feminine side. Yeah, on that he one did. Little. He really did, because you know he did. He was. He had trouble with the lyric for a while, but I, <laughs> right. I told him it was in there somewhere. You cheered him on, and <laughs> <laughs> pull it out of him. Um, you and Nick had a you know really a remarkable string of successes with your own songs in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, top ten R and B singles with uh, "It Seems to Hang On," "Found a Cure," "Love Don't Make It Right," "Street Corner." But the one that everybody still sings along to today is Solid, which, of course, mm-hmm. was, you know, such a big hit. Number one hit in came from the street uh nick was said he was walking down the street and this guy came up and said yo man solid you know and gave him the hands the whole thing and when he came in the house he said you know that was something really embracing about that you know hmm. it was like a camaraderie he said yeah. but it also felt like you know like our relationship you know and so it became solid solid as a rock you know yeah. and uh so you know you never know you have to always just be on the lookout Mm-hmm. And keep your ears open, you know, yeah. uh, and because it, it can be a, a great title mm-hmm. that someone gives you, and you don't have to go back and give them royalties. <laughs> <laughs> right? They don't even know they said it to you. <laughs> right? Ideas are free; yeah. they're just out there. Have to have those antenna up. Um, but at the same time, you know, you still got like Diana Ross, you know, doing the boss. You got Gladys Knight doing Landlord. You got Shaka Khan again doing Clouds. How are you guys at this stage in your career when you're successful as recording artists and behind the scenes writers, how do you kind of decide like, okay, this one's for us. Well, this one's for so-and-so. I mean, how do you kind of figure that out? Well, the duets are really hard because you got to have, you know, you want to have a a decent male point of view and a female point of view. Mm -hmm. So those are harder to come up with than the songs usually are usually stem from a singular point of view yeah so you know it was clear you know which songs were definitely not ours and also sometimes when you know you have a hit you know that you're not the best carrier for that song huh you know you want the the you know because it's the elements that have to go in you need a strong carrier somebody who's recognizable to the public in a bigger way i don't think ain't no mountain high enough would have been anything near what it was if we had done it hmm. way back then, yeah, uh, you know, it wouldn't have necessarily found the audience that it needed to find. Yeah, uh, so you have to be, you have to be a business person. You have to mm-hmm. think it through. Some people hold on to things; it's yeah. just a waste of time. Yeah, there's a, a, a certain objectivity and setting the ego aside that's required. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, to do what's best for the song and not 
you know, necessarily what you might want the most mm-hmm. or something. And I always, I always didn't mind because I knew we'd get to sing it later. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can still sing in your show. <laughs> um, well, you guys continued to, to land hits through the rest of the 1980s, including the top five singles, Out of the World, Count Your Blessings, I'll Be There For You. You know, at this point, you guys had, had been at it for, for three decades. Um, and I'm curious if your writing process changed over time. And what I mean by that isn't, you know, who did words, who did music, but more sort of like the, the discipline of writing. I mean, did you guys set aside time each day or did you kind of wait for inspiration or how did, how did that kind of evolve in, in how you worked together over time? Well, you always want to trick yourself, you know, because you never want to think that you're working. So, uh, I mean, that's the way we felt about it, you know, you mm-hmm. know but we, we wanted to put the time and we knew it was necessarily put time in. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so, okay, we're going to work at such and such an hour, you know, uh, but if I heard him down in the living room singing, you know, I might come down and, you know, start to play. Or if he heard me playing, he might come yeah. down and join in or, yeah. you know, so that is like a, a natural flow uh-huh. of thing, you know, so that, you know. You need the discipline of the time to work on your craft and the spontaneity of yeah. of when to jump on a great idea. Kinda. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, well, in, in 2011, Nick passed away, you know, far too early after his battle with throat cancer. And, you know, you guys were obviously partners in, in life and in parenthood and in, in business and music, you know, and performing all aspects, you know, that, that you could imagine. Um, but you've continued to be to be very active musically um, since that time, including releasing your first solo album in, in decades in 2012, the, uh, dinosaurs are coming back again record. And, uh, that included the, the song make it up as we go featuring Nina Simone on mm-hmm. one of her last performances, kind of bringing it full circle yeah. back to that, that early inspiration. Thrills would really thrill as we Talk about the process of, of getting back into that musically creative space, you know, when you're also grieving and it's, it's different now. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very different. But, but you know, it's, it's like a new path. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like being starting all over again, really, because suddenly I'm writing a whole song. I didn't know I could write a whole song, you know, because hmm. I never asked myself. You know, Nick was such a fabulous lyricist. I didn't have to. Yeah. So now I'm writing words. Oh, I can write words. Oh, my God. You know, this makes sense. Huh. This sounds pretty good. You know, so yeah. uh, it, it was a very interesting. Pro- and also the stage. When you're a duet, you take up a certain portion of the stage. You don't try to outshine your partner. You know, you keep a balance. You know, suddenly yeah. I got to be bigger than I was. Hmm. And I got to cover the whole stage. Yeah. And I got to remember all the words and not just half the words. You <laughs> right, know? right. So things like this, you know, really, uh, like I say, was like new territory, new ground, you know. And so either you become bolder and, and more outgoing mm-hmm. or you wither and you, 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 you know, to the side, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah. Or, and, you know, I, and then I don't want to take so many bows about what I did, hmm. you know, because that means I'm not going to do anything yeah. as far as I'm concerned. You know, so. <laughs> right. Um, so it's been a learning process. Yeah. So now I'm turning down those things where, you know, they said, come on, you know, your mm-hmm. lifetime achievement. I'm not finished achieving. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> my lifetime's not done. Yeah, please. Give yeah. Me a break. <laughs> well, in, in 2016, Corinne Bailey Ray's album, um, The Heart Speaks and Whispers, it yeah, included a yeah. song that you guys wrote together, um, mm. Do You Ever Think of Me? I think she's fantastic. I, she's oh, a, she's, she's a, a great, great, great she's lady. A great yeah. artist. But, you know, that's got to be, a, it's like a, a new opportunity and a new challenge. Now you're working with other people, you know, yeah. b- besides Nick. So you're kind of learning other people's eccentricities and their styles and their, you know, figuring out how to, you know, collaborate. Yeah. Collaboration is great. It's wonderful. And, and like I say, Pressing yourself to be more than you've ever been mm-hmm. is also good, you know, where, you know, you, you do 100% sometimes. Yeah. You made your debut as a Broadway performer last year as uh, Mama Morton in the show Chicago. Mm. Um, you know, pretty cool after living in New York your whole life and now you're, you're on the Broadway stage. How did that opportunity come about? Well, it was really, you know, weird. Just kind of fell in my lap. I, I went to a party at Claude Davis's home and... Um, Alicia Keys was, it was the cocktail hour and Alicia Keys was supposed to be there and sing something and she called and couldn't make it. And he came over to me and asked me, you know, could I do a couple of numbers at the piano? Hmm. And even though I had my wine glass in my hand, I wasn't thinking about singing. Right. Uh, I, uh, I said, okay, cause Clive is a good friend and you don't say no to Clive. <laughs> So I went over and I did, uh, what did I, do? I did uh, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. I talked about him and, you know, how authentic he is and original and blah, blah. And then I went, I did a piece of that into Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Mm-hmm. And so this gentleman came over to me afterward, uh, Barry, and he says, I have um, a show. And, you know, I can see you in my show. I said, what is, what is your show? And he says, it's, it's Chicago. He said, I could see you as Mama Morton. I said, really? <laughs> you know, that seemed like, you know, I, I was thinking of, um, who was it that played it? Um, Queen Latifah. Uh-huh, yeah, Somebody, you know, and I had a girlfriend that played that part, and she was <laughs> zoftic, you know, and right. big. I'm like, how are you seeing me? You know? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, two months later, I finally, you know, called him back because I, I had to ask a few people, do you see me doing that? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, you know? <laughs> and so I went for the audition, and I got it. Hmm. Wow. And it was a, a great, great experience. I was so nervous. And it's good to get nervous and get goosebumps on your arms and all hmm. that stuff. Yeah. So I loved it. I get out of your it. comfort zone a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I was like shook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, remembering words. Right. You know, and where am I supposed to be over here? And I'm talking to you now. <laughs> right, right, right. It was fun. Um, well, you several years ago established... Um, the uh, Reach Out and Touch Award with ASCAP, um, which offers financial assistance to promising, you know, songwriters so that they can get their their recordings done, and it's a way to to you know honor Nick and and encourage um, up and coming writers. Uh, talk about why that is is an important uh, effort for you. Well, you know, having Sugar Bar, I I get to see all these kids. You know, you hmm. know they'll come in, and I try to encourage them to do original material, you know, don't just clone, you know, what's already been done. You know, it's nice if you can come up with a new arrangement of a song that we already know, but if there's something in your heart, that's yours, you know, this is the place to get it out, say it, you know, Mm -hmm. do it. 
So it comes down to money in many instances. So that award will give an, a really good singer. It could be an almost established singer or somebody that's had a hit. Uh, it gives them a $5,000, you know, uh, money worth, and they can work on a, you know, a project of their yeah. own. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I get a kick out of that, you know, and, and, yeah. and so many of them have gone on and done some really nice, lovely work, you know. Very cool. So for the first time, something else new is happening. Uh, this year, the Grammys has 12 trustee awards and mm-hmm. Ashford and Simpson are getting one. That is awesome. Isn't that great? That is, that is fine company, the, the Grammy trustees award. That's yeah. really cool. Very cool. Well, congratulations on the, on the upcoming Grammy trustee award. Love that. Um, thank you for the, the years of, of great music and the more great music I know will be coming up. And thank you for, for your time today. This has really been, really been great. My pleasure. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. 